HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, where cheese lovers, cheese makers, cheese nibblers, and cheese curious are all welcome. Find the really good stuff, meet the makers, and connect with fellow travelers on the cheese way of life. Visit wisconsincheese.com to learn more and sign up. Growing up, I was obsessed with Dr. Seuss. And what never really sat right with me was that my parents were never able to make me green eggs and ham. If Sam I Am could offer the unnamed man green eggs and ham, why couldn't I have them too? How hard could it have really been to make this iconic dish for me? Would my parents have had to travel far and wide to procure the ingredients? And would they have even found them in a town in India? The most upsetting part was that I would never get to taste a dish that I had spent hours thinking about. All of us have that one dish that we want to eat but just can't. And while we have learned to make peace with the fact that we may never know what these mythical foods are like, we cannot deny the mouth-watering effect they have on us. That was HRN intern Vaidehi Kujiati. Whether it's the Chocolate River in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory the healing ambrosia from the Percy Jackson series, or the body-morphing mushrooms in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, fictional foods expand our imaginations. They break down the boundaries of what food can be. Perhaps because they're unattainable, these foods get stuck in our minds and stay with us for years. This week on Meet and 3, join us for a meal in the fictional multiverse as we zap through different time periods and magical worlds. Maybe we'll ignite the curiosity of your inner child along the way. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and 3 on HRN. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and 3. To kick us off, Michael Edwin explores why made-up meals tug at our heartstrings. The mythical foods cemented in our imaginations can often be traced to childhood classics. On Meant to be Eaten, author Kate Young shares her thoughts on why these stories stay with us. She's the author of The Little Library, a book filled with recipes inspired by literature. I think that our emotions are really rooted 
in in memories from childhood. I think that there's a lot of emotion held in those early memories that we all have. And I think that there's something particularly tangible about memories of food, even if it's not meals you actually ate, but meals you read about. In really mystical worlds that you can't imagine being, you can still kind of imagine the food and imagine what it must be like to sit down with those characters around that table. And so I found and and have found talking to people about it since that people really do have a, a a strong memory of the food in the books they read, particularly as children, but also in in books we read as adults as well. I remember listening to Winnie the Pooh when I was little. My mum had it uh, on audiobook. There's a beautiful recording of it that's Alan Bennett reading it. Um, and I remember very specifically listening to that as I was going to sleep and waking up thinking of honey um, <laughs> and and wanting honey and bread and, and butter. And there's that wonderful bit in Winnie the Pooh where, where Winnie the Pooh says, I, I, I would quite like some honey, and I think it's and some, some cream or some bread. And he said, but don't worry too much about the bread, the honey, just make sure there's honey. And I remember that really distinctly. But how does she translate memories like this into a recipe? I think it's very much that everyone's going to have their own perception of what those characters look like, what that table looks like, what the food looks and tastes like. So I know that it's only ever going to be my interpretation of it. Um, But I try and read historic cookbooks and look at where those recipes might have come from or why that mention of that particular food fits in that particular scene and have a real think about what that means in that scene and where it might have come from. Katie's recipes may never fully satisfy individuals' unique imaginations, but she does think that they have the potential to bring us together. I do think that literature and storytelling and the way in which we communicate and tell stories to each other is a really important thing as well and is something that shapes communities and allows us to understand our history and where we come from and gives us empathy and all of these incredible things that we know that storytelling does. Delicious food and great books can form strong bonds, even among strangers. Zoe Denkla speaks to a chef who gathers readers, authors, and eaters around the table to build on this connection. When we were little, my sister and I loved Little House on the Prairie. Unsurprisingly, as somebody working at HRN, I was captivated by how this American family from the 1800s ate. In one passage, the main character describes making maple candy. She pours sap onto fresh snow and watches it crystallize. So, naturally, the next snow day, my sister and I grabbed the maple syrup from our fridge and scurried to the backyard. We were quickly stopped by my mom, because I guess Brooklyn snow is quote-unquote not clean. Snow aside, in that moment, I was Laura Ingalls Wilder. Food descriptions in literature can be powerful portals into another world. This is the premise for a long-running dinner series in Brooklyn called Tables of Contents. The dinners were created by Chef Evan Hanser and his business partner George in 2012. The two used to run Egg, a farm-to-table restaurant in Williamsburg. Evan and George are both writers as well as chefs, so this blending of food and literature came naturally. I talked to Evan about how these literary-inspired dinners came to be. 
Tables of Contents started in 2012. We did a dinner for the Food Book Fair, and we decided to do a meal inspired by The Sun Also Rises. We did a five-course meal, which was a blast, probably because there was, you know, it being Hemingway, a lot of alcohol in it. <laughs> if you ever end up with any used copies of my books and flip to the back page, you'll see dozens of page numbers with little dishes noted in the back. Most books have some mention of food. So which scenes make the cut? How does Evan go about choosing books to spotlight? He explains that when reading, he isn't just skimming for someone grabbing coffee on the way out the door or munching on movie theater popcorn. He wants these dinners to capture more. Maybe someone's uh, in a moment that's really difficult for them and they're trying to eat and, and keep their emotions at bay. And that opportunity to explore emotions that are not just about the delicious and the comforting is a really kind of cool thing that art gets to do that food doesn't always get to do. Over the years, we've done uh, a number of dinners inspired by different classic texts like Their Eyes Are Watching God, A Member of the Wedding, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And we eventually expanded into a reading series, which was a way for us to bring contemporary authors into the room. Talking to Evan, I realized I wasn't alone in my little house on the prairie moment. Through these dinners, he's found that books he read during childhood or as a young adult were some of his richest sources of inspiration. The dishes that come out of those just feel really, really strong, I think, because of that connection across different stages of my own life. One of my favorite dishes that is still from the first book we did, From the Sun Also Rises, there's a scene that I remember reading where two of the characters are fishing at the border of Spain and France. They catch these trout and they wrap them in ferns and lay them under a tree to stay cool. And they have this wine chilling in the stream that's running. And so we did a dish of smoked trout with ferns or dandelion greens, fiddleheads uh, in, a, in a light broth. It served, of course, like a, a very cold white wine. And it felt like a dish that succeeded in transporting me to a moment in the fictional world that I had always kind of dreamed of, of going to. Food can be the ultimate comfort. Maybe it's a stew on a frigid night or a chocolate chip cookie after a long day. Literature, on the other hand, can more openly evoke the less positive moments. Evan doesn't shy away from the darker sides of what food can symbolize. Combining food and literature plunges the diner into an emotionally immersive experience. We've had Carmen Maria Machado join a couple times, and I'm such a fan of her work. So there's one uh, one moment when Carmen read, I think it was from Her Body and Other Parties, and there's a passage where a baby's fontanelle, which is the soft spot on their skull, is described as having the texture of gnocchi. And so we served like a very simple gnocchi and butter sauce after Carmen read that passage and everyone had just now has this image of chewing into a, a soft baby's flesh as they're eating this gnocchi that previously had no reference point other than a delicious pasta. And I think that makes it cool for the authors as well because there are times when they don't really know what's coming and they're able to experience their own work in a new way. There's all sorts of directions we can take it, all sorts of possibilities for how to choose to interpret a text or tie things together. And, and that's what keeps it really interesting, is that there's so many places it can end up that when we start, we, we don't necessarily know where it's going to go. Tables of Contents dinners are meant to be more than just a meal. They're the start of a conversation. Evan and his team don't offer a dish as the definitive way Hemingway meant it to be. They own that it's their interpretation. These meals are intended as a space to hear how people's takes may differ. 
I used to think of all the wacky foods in Little House on the Prairie as just kind of random mentions, you know? The cornmeal mush, the pickled beets, the vinegar pie. But after talking to Evan, I want to go back and reread those pages. I have a feeling that food might be doing more than just setting the 19th century scene. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, the ultimate community of cheese lovers. Cheeselandia is your golden pathway to the world of Wisconsin artisanal cheese, where you can immerse yourself in a vibrant society of cheese, in real life and online. Join this community of fellow travelers from all 50 states on the Cheeseway of life and enjoy member-only events. Attend the School of Cheese, pursue cheese quests, and apply to host your own Cheeselandia house party. Visit wisconsincheese.com slash Cheeselandia to join. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meet and 3. The Harry Potter franchise is a goldmine for bloggers looking to interpret their own versions of mythical food. Between Honeyduke's Express Sweets to hundreds of interpretations of Polyjuice Potion, the franchise has plenty of food and drink options to riff on. Will Hartman brings us into the kitchen to take a sip of one of the most popular. It's a cold, snowy day in the middle of February. As you sit up high in your four-poster bed thinking about how you're going to spend your one day out on the town from boarding school, you know deep down that what you really want to do is gather a group of friends, carve out a corner in everyone's favorite pub, and knock down round after round of... butterbeer? Such is the case for many Hogwarts students spending a day in the abutting village of Hogsmeade. This beloved, fantastical drink is a favorite amongst Hogwarts students, but what does it really taste like? Universal Studios' Wizarding World of Harry Potter makes a hot and a cold version at their theme park in Florida, which is often likened to cream soda and is cloyingly sweet. In all likelihood, J.K. Rowling's inspiration for butterbeer likely came from an Elizabethan-era drink known as buttered beer. This warm, spiced beer that's emulsified with butter and eggs is an excellent beverage to sit by a fire while paying tribute to your feudal lord. In order to capture the full spectrum of what butterbeer can be, I'm going to make a recipe for the original buttered beer, and another one of my own design that's a much more grown-up version than what you might find at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. First up is a recipe for buttered beer that the BBC History magazine adapted from a 1588 cookbook entitled The Good Huswife's Handmade for the Kitchen. It calls for one and a half liters of good quality ale. I'll be using a Belgian blonde ale for its crisp notes and slightly malty taste. I also think it's fairly age-appropriate for historical accuracy. The beer is then seasoned with a whopping 200 grams of Demerara sugar, and I know this seems completely ridiculous, 
but in the name of being a good mythical historian, I'll soldier on. It's also seasoned with cloves, nutmeg, and ginger. After the ale has been heated, the recipe calls for whisking in and emulsifying five egg yolks and 100 grams of unsalted butter. Although this seems to be less of a beverage and more of a recipe for a triple bypass, here's my live reaction. It's actually really good. You know that's what? Not that's, that's, that's not half bad. That's pretty good. That's not half bad. If it weren't like a nice spring day, I would drink more of this. Yeah, if it was like a cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, cold I got to be honest, it kind of smells like a brewery dumpster. But it yeah. tastes delicious. <laughs> yeah, it, it smells... No, it Caleb smells made good. a good point. It, it smells very... It smells like when you break open a hollow bread and you just get, like, pure yeast smell, mm-hmm. but it does not taste like that at all. Really, like what I think it is is that it's just... There's mm-hmm. so much sugar in here. It's, it's so sweet. It's in, it's almost sickly sweet. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, delicious, it, it's not an all-night drink, but uh, it's pretty delicious. For my own interpretation of butterbeer, I'll turn to the hundreds of blog sites that have attempted to recreate the frozen drink sold in Orlando for inspiration. A disclaimer... I'm not a bartender, I'm not a mixologist, but I am a massive Harry Potter fan, and I'm going to live out one of my childhood dreams. Most of these recipes seem to have a few things in common, such as freezing small portions of cream soda, then blending in cold cream soda, and topping off with butterscotch whipped cream. I'm taking it several steps further by starting with white rum and fat washing it with brown butter that's been seasoned with clove, cinnamon, and nutmeg. Fat washing is this process of storing alcohol for a short period of time in cold fat, which is then later scraped off. It adds savory notes to the spirit, as well as a richer texture. I'm hoping that by infusing the spices into the brown butter, they'll also perfume the spirit. Next, I'll combine that with my favorite cream soda, which is of course, Boylan's. Lastly, I'll garnish with a bit of fresh nutmeg and enjoy! Here's my honest, live reaction. Yeah, I mean that's that's pleasant. That's mm-hmm. just sweet. It's a little spicy. It's rich on the palate from the brown butter. Um, it's really nice, I think. Yeah, this is definitely something I've ordered before. This is a this is a classic. While this drink was a bit on the sweeter side, it was really really fun experimenting with spicing my own rum and fat washing. It's a really interesting process and one that would definitely make Madame Rose Murda. The innkeeper at the Three Broomsticks in Hogsmeade, very proud. Now let's hop from the movie screen into a video game console. Games like Street Fighter or Destiny allow you to de-stress and socialize with your friends. But Victoria Rosenthal takes careful note of what the characters you roleplay are gobbling up. Alex Tran interviews this author of four video game-based cookbooks and a recipe blog. Have you ever wondered what dragon gyoza would taste like? Or maybe radioactive mac and cheese? Questions like these arise every day in Victoria Rosenthal line of work. One of the games that always stands out in my head is a game called Battle Chef Brigade, where they can have an item like a gyoza, but they push it further with, okay, we have these creatures in this world. We have dragons. So let's take the dragon meat that would exist in this world and somehow attach it to like a real world equivalent of being a gyoza. So I know a lot of my challenges working with these fictional foods uh, from creatures that don't exist. Actually, the Fallout cookbook is another great example because it's a bunch of creatures that have been 
infected with radiation and kind of have to you have to figure out like, okay, what is a Meyer Lurk going to taste like? Because you're not going to go to your local market and find something like that. She's also designed creature themselves in food form. The series called Bug Snacks. It's a indie game where you go on an island where there are a bunch of creatures that are based off of food items. Uh, you'll find one of the first like bug snacks you'll find is a little thing called a strabby which is a strawberry with little nice googly eyes and they'll run around. And the game starts off as you're going and collecting these creatures to, to kind of do research on them and then feed them to the island locals, if you so choose. Um, and a lot of them are kind of based on like real world things. But on my blog, I took each of those creatures and I kind of started recreating a few of them. Her blog, Pixelated Provision, is home to a long list of video game recipe that are yet to be published in book form. They range from dishes closer to real life, like GTA chicken burritos and wings, to more exotic recipe, like Bucksnap Bucksiri. My personal favorite and challenge that existed was the Cinna Snail, which is a snail that looks like a cinnamon roll. Um, and since the game is called Bug Snacks, I figured I need to use bug in some form so actually the dough does have cricket flour in there to at least have that element of bug in the recipe creating this recipe for a blog and cookbooks has been an exciting challenge for victoria herself and one she extends to fellow gamers another very important aspect for me has been convincing like other people that hey the kitchen might seem scary what about those video games that you're playing? They have a lot of food. Giving them that connection kind of at least convinces them that, hey, I could go into the kitchen and I could try this because my favorite game has this. And that connection has helped. I've heard that from a lot of people that it really inspires them to finally take that big step. And one of the most inspired groups has been young gamers worldwide. I've also heard a lot of parents are really excited for these books because they've had their kids jumping into the kitchen. I've gotten many notes from moms and dads saying, oh my goodness, my child brought this book and they were like, I want to cook this. And they started cooking in their kitchen. If regular weeknight cooking doesn't get you going, maybe dragon gyoza will be the creative spark you always needed. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Michael Edwin, Zoe Denkla, Will Hartman, Alex Tran, Vaidehi Kujati, and Angela Cho. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.